0: Hey, it's Chris, the Supply Chain Doctor and host of Supply Chain is Boring, bringing insight into the history of supply chain management and exposing you to some of the industry's thought leaders and driving forces. In this episode, we sat down with Rebecca Costa, American sociobiologist, futurist, and author, to learn more about her perspective on future supply chain management trends. It all sounds pretty boring. Let's see if Rebecca can prove me wrong. Rebecca, I learned about you through your TED talk that I I watched. You did it in September 2011. After viewing several more of your keynote presentations on YouTube, which there are plenty, I noticed you will occasionally reference supply chain topics, and you sometimes even say the term supply chain. I look forward to learning more about you and your futuristic perspective on what I call this boring field of supply chain management.
1: One thing we have learned from the pandemic is supply chain is everything. I mean, had we not had uh, the tools that we have in uh, supply chain management here in this country, I think we would have been looking at a completely different picture uh, once people went to stores and could get no food. I have a friend of mine who often says uh, anarchy is five missed meals away. And I think that might be true. (laughs)
0: Uh,
1: We see it's just a, you know, civilization is a thin veneer and it, when you get hungry, it starts to break down. So uh, we learned a lot about supply chain and we also learned a lot about uh, our inflexibility. You know, we had a lot of protein makers, you know, uh, meat packing plants and chicken plants and, and things like that, that suddenly that were servicing industrial clients and suddenly the need was for smaller packaged, you know, consumer goods. Making that switch up was just a nightmare, you know. So, so we, we really, I think, came face to face with two things. How not boring and important supply chain is in keeping the fibers of civilization moving forward when you have a disaster. But second of all, you know, confronting our individual inflexibility in terms of being able to switch gears. We, we get locked into a certain way of doing things and then we drive toward efficiency. And as you drive toward efficiency, you narrow your options and your options become fewer and fewer. Efficiency is the enemy of resiliency.
0: You've got a lot of opinions or I say a lot of thought-provoking ideas from what I've seen, but before we get to those, can, can you just, you're a futurist, I, I'll say that. What, is it, what exactly is a futurist and then how does one become one?
1: I have to tell you that, uh, that label was forced on me Okay. (laughs) and I, uh, I often start out by telling people I don't, I don't talk to dead people and I have no deck of tarot cards. I don't have a crystal ball. I'm actually an expert at predictive analytics, but that sounds so boring that I, you know, my, my father once cautioned me. He said, don't say that because I notice people move away from you at parties. So you might not want to say. Well, you yeah. might not want to use words like analytics. But but the fact is is that if you have a hundred points of data, you have a pretty good shot at guessing what the hundred and first point is going to be. And when you have billions and billions and billions of points of data and uh, artificial intelligence that can can really comb that data and look for patterns, it's not that difficult to know what the next event is highly likely to be. To some of us the speed at which the pandemic moved the you know the exponentiation at which it moved was not a surprise at all and i would say those people like myself that are futurists and and really are data wonks were not surprised at at how the contamination moved
0: you talk about the amount of data i I think i heard you say once that it's the concept of the dilemma of overchoice. you say too many options is the same as is having none
1: well unfortunately we have a less than 3% difference in genomic material from a bonobo monkey. And, and so, you know, you, you take all of this data and you, and you slam us with this data, and then you say, all right, go make sense of it. We're so far beyond being able to use the cognitive resources we have, which are, you know, almost 98% similar to a bonobo monkey, that's not going to get us to where we need to be in terms of leveraging the information we have. We have more information than we are using. And that's why artificial intelligence is so important because it, it, it compensates for what our brains can never do.
0: Yeah, and the extension of that is machine learning. You, you take, talk about artificial intelligence. The next step is exactly. the machine you know, learning.
1: Machines, machines are better. And and this relationship that we have with machines is changing. From a sociological standpoint, our trust with machines is getting stronger and stronger. And our distrust with human beings is getting more significant. You know, you might go outside and your, your uh, neighbor says, hey, I think it's going to rain. You might grab a jacket. And you walk inside and you go, Alexa, you know, what's the weather? And it says, oh, it's going to rain at 429. In fact, my smartphone will say rain in six minutes. I mean, that's how (laughs) I I don't know a neighbor that can tell me it's going to rain in six minutes. And so with all these smart devices and, and our reliance on them, we're becoming more and more trusting of what the digital world has to offer and what computing can offer.
0: So let me wrap, wrap some of this back around to the topic that the audience <laughs> listens to or dials in for. Supply chain. So in some of your sessions, you talk about 3D printing, drone delivery services, a lot of those things. Is there anything specific that, you're, that you, you see in the future?
1: Yeah, I, I believe there are, are four significant trends which anybody in supply chain should already be preparing for and should already have reconnaissance on. If you are running a supply chain company or you have a supply chain job or you're getting into a supply chain career, there are four areas which absolutely are going to change the way that we think of supply chain. Most of them are buzzwords, but you need to go much deeper because as we've discovered from this recent pandemic, you can't react to something after it's already happened. You know, I mean, that's too late. The term that I've invented is pre-dapt. You can't adapt because change is moving too fast now. You have to pre-dapt and that means doing reconnaissance work and being prepared, having certain things in place that don't cost a lot of money, but allow you to pivot uh, very, very quickly and successfully. And there are lots of examples of, of companies that were able to do that. So the four areas really are drones. As drones have gotten bigger and bigger and are able to carry larger supply loads, we're going to find that drones are very, very significant. You know that Amazon has already launched their test drone uh, delivery systems. Mercedes has a new van that has uh, a delivery van that has a, a runway and numbers of drones on the tops of the Mercedes. And it will select the package, deliver it to the porch, and then come back and find where the Mercedes is on the freeway so that the Mercedes never has to leave the freeway. The drones are leaving the delivery van and coming back to the van. So that last mile is going to be serviced by drones. We know this because in France, I happen to be speaking as a keynote speaker at a conference in France, where they dispatched an ambulance and a drone with life-saving medication for someone who was having a heart attack. And the drone got there 12 minutes faster than the ambulance was able to get there. And a little pocket opened up and the the wife of the husband who was having the uh, heart attack was able to to administer the medication and save his life. So we know that in emergencies, we need drones. We we know that that last mile is, uh, is very costly to distribution channels. And so we know that drones are gonna be very important. Along those lines, robots, robots don't get viruses, they don't call in sick. Social robots are going to become particularly important in terms of uh, customer service. It's going to be a lot nicer to be able to go on Skype and actually see a face that looks like a face with synthetic skin. We know that there are 53 muscles that that operate the human face and give empathy cues and understanding, nodding, right blinking, smiling. All of those things, and we know social robots are very effective at doing that and making a person feel understood. The interesting thing about having artificial intelligence social robots is they never forget what that customer has told them. So five years from now, if you have a customer service problem, I can say, well, how's your son Dan doing? Did he graduate from college? The last time we talked, he was just entering college. They will not forget any piece of data. So, so that, that is going to be really instrumental in establishing long-term customers. A third area you might look at is smart labels. We are getting to the point now where we have so many regulations and so many requirements that we can't get them on the label. And so anybody who's gone to a pharmacy, you get your pill bottle and then you get this multifold You know, uh, all the precautions not to mix certain uh, medicines together, when to take it, take it with food or without food, so on and so forth. And so similarly, um, uh, we look at products on the market and these smart labels where you can just tap your phone and you can go all the way to the original source of the ingredients. That is going to be really, really key because the consumer wants to buy responsibly. We have a, a new generation, not people my age, but a digital generation who wants to know what the child labor laws are of that farm from which the coffee beans came and originated and what the and what kinds of pesticides were being used. And we're going to go all the way down to the core ingredients and where they were sourced and what the labor laws were and what kinds of you know, chemicals were used and how people were paid and, and those kinds of things. We're really going to get very, very deep. And that's what the, that digital consumer is going to be concerned with. And so if you're not working on smart labels right now, you're way behind. You really need to get on that. And then the fourth area, of course, is 3D printing. Eventually, everything will be customized. There will be no generic drinks. It won't be Coca-Cola. It'll be Coca-Cola matched to your palate. It'll be apple juice that's a little bit sweeter for you, Chris, and a little less sweet for me. We're going to get down to the consumer being able to do to get shoes that exactly fit their foot, suits that exactly have the kind of uh, fabric that you like, and, and, and where AI machines are driving that, and they know what fabrics you're allergic to, and they know that you can't use a certain type of detergent to wash that clothing, and so... All of this is going to come together and it's really going to affect supply chain because supply chain to this point has been about efficiency and mass production. How many th- items can you get off the line, right? And that de- that means standardization and the world is moving away from standardization to customization. And so those companies that are don't have their eyes on that right now, I think are really going to be hurting as we get, further and further into 3D printing and more and more personalization. So those would be two, four areas. There's others, but those would be four areas that I would have my eyes on.
0: Yeah, I've got a lot of ideas around just just those four things that you talked about. Back to the first one, drone deliveries. I saw a video, I don't know, Rebecca, if you know about warehouses, they typically have a very large footprint. They're probably 30 or 40 40 feet high just because of the equipment restrictions, but they can be as big as a football field. You know, sometimes four or five football fields. What I saw on this video was their high rises. They'll be in cities. They'll be high rises because now drones can actually go fly up to the tenth, the twentieth floor, and get the product. So I thought that was an interesting concept. It's just going to change the way things. That's exactly
1: right. It will cut down on real estate. But but bear in mind, as we get into 3D printing, we won't be warehousing standard products anymore. We'll be warehousing is ingredients. We will be warehousing components, and everything will be Dell computer. We're going to get to know you, the consumer, and deliver to you, the consumer, what you want.
0: And the thing is, 3D printing has been around for a long time. It has
1: been, but it really hasn't gone into commercial production. And when we talk about 3D printing, we're talking about 3D printing food, clothing, ammunition, cars, car parts. We're even talking about housing. In China, they use a large Vulcan 3D printer to put up 10, 1800 square foot houses in one day. So imagine now what that does to the real estate market and the supply chain that supplies to that real estate market. You know, if you're supplying – if you're just a standard lumber store, like, you know, a Home Depot or a or, or Lowe's or that kind of thing, you better be thinking about, well, what happens when the, when the construction market makes the move, right, to using 3D printers to produce these massive numbers of homes in one day? Ten homes in one day?
0: On 3D printing, do you think they'll remain as part of the company that's selling? Or will they, it'll be like a razor, they'll, they'll give you the razor, so you'll come back and keep buying, you know, then you can buy from them, you just download a program, and you can print something on your desk.
1: What are your Well, thoughts that? that's what's up for grabs right now, whether it's a Keurig model, you know, buy the machine, and then you got to buy our pods, and we'll license certain people to use our pod technology. Uh, it may go that route. Uh, it may go that, you know, we, we license you the machine and update the machine periodically, we don't sell it to you. It could go any number of directions. Someone will make a move on it, you know, and then everyone else will be scrambling. So this is why I think that the most important thing a company can do right now is to have a group within their company that is solely, and I mean doesn't have other jobs and and are expected to do this between midnight and 3 a.m., but solely are focused on reconnaissance. What's the next disruption and how are we preparing for it? What do we have in place to make that transition?
0: On 3D printing, one of the, I guess, the holy grail of supply chain management, and it ties in with your, your concepts around efficiency. The holy grail is a lot size of one, because now people, you know, if you have a large manufacturing plant, you want to make as much as you can for, for equipment utilization. But most of the time, people are only ordering in, in batches of one. And that's, that's what we're trying to get to. So, so, so can, what,
1: how, how are you going to be profitable making one?
0: That's the grail. That's the, holy, that's the question everybody's pursuing. And you won't have to store as much. You won't have to uh, make as much. You won't have to sell it at, at a lower profit margin no, as it, much. but
1: it wreaks havoc into our mentality. You know, ever since Henry Ford started knocking off cars off that production line, all of our mentality in terms of manufacturing, right, has been mass standard production and a drive toward efficiency and there isn't anything more efficient than selling one. That's so so inefficient. So the question is how what is your profit model going to look like? How are you going to do that? Because that is where the consumer is going. And we know that they're going in that direction by by the way that they're behaving, by their behavior. We know that, you know, they they want customized things. I mean, and 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 so, you know, the people that are making Custom shoes and the people that are moving in that direction will be the survivors.
0: Yeah, that's something new I've seen. I'm, I'm studying and I've seen it. It's called sensitivity. The, the AI or the machine learning will begin to adapt and understand what consumers are sensing, either in their text messages, their, their social media chats, and they'll know if Chris wants sweeter or if he wants faster or whatever it's going to be.
1: And it will make the correction for you. It it will make the correction. A customer service window will pop up and say, "Chris, we've noticed that you've been uh, uh, that your palate has changed, and you you tend to like things a little sweeter. This time we we added a little more sweetness to your drink. If you have any problems with it, if you don't like it, let us know, and we'll go back to the previous formulation. There are other things that are coming down the pike, particularly in the food area. You know, as we get closer and closer to personalized nutrition." Imagine now that you have a Fitbit type of device, right, that's able to say, hey, you know, Rebecca didn't get enough zinc today. And so imagine that I have a Keurig-like device in my home and that you can send a digital message and say, up her zinc. She didn't eat enough to get the appropriate zinc. Or she's dehydrated, so, so ping her phone and tell her, to go to her refrigerator and get one of our energy drinks. I mean, we're going to get to a point where you will be telling me what I need to eat and I need to drink, and you will be delivering it to me in a way that my palate wants it. Because the biggest problem right now with getting people to eat and drink right is that the things that we should eat and drink don't taste good. We don't like them. But if you can figure out what my palate likes and tell me when I'm short on vitamin C or vitamin D, or I'm, I'm dehydrated. How do you know when you're dehydrated? You don't know. You go, gee, I haven't had a drink for a while. That, that's not scientific.
0: <laughs> or if you do know, you don't know until it's too late sometimes.
1: That's, that's correct, and that leads to heart attacks and lot of, of, uh, a lot of dangerous problems. So we're getting to the point where the data that we can accumulate from about you physiologically and behaviorally has gotten to be so extensive that customization is the natural, uh, you know, next step.
0: Yeah, and we, in supply chain, we call, there's a concept called mass customization. It's where you're trying to make it specific for one person, but you're also trying to take advantage of the economies of scale in making a lot. So there's that concept there. Well, that
1: works to a point. You start to fragment, right? Your, mm-hmm. your markets start to fragment into lots of vertical markets. And you say, all right, uh, we have Pedialyte for kids, mom and dad, and now we have Pedialyte for adults who have hangovers. Now we're going to have Pedialyte. You know, you're going to start to like, you know, fragment your market into lots of verticals, and eventually, I suppose, you will get to some semi-customization, and that might be a prelude. That may be the half step you have to take in manufacturing and supply chain. Lastly, I would point out that. When we talk about supply chain, everybody knows that we're, we're talking about global supply chain. And one of the lessons that we have learned very quickly is some things cannot be subcontracted outside your country, like ventilators. <laughs> Maybe that's not such a good idea. So we can, we can kind of now begin to see that there are um, going to be some government regulations that come down the pike. And that, we, that as a corporation, we need to begin to look at what we make and for what purpose we make it and make some decisions about what happens when we cannot source overseas. You know, what, what is our backup? Many times with companies, I, uh, you know, if the drive to efficiency is a drive to exclusivity. You, you know, you want to give all your business to, to one company because your business is, is, becomes larger to that company and is more significant. But the fact is, is, in a high failure rate environment, you need diversification. Just as in Wall Street, you wouldn't put all your money on one stock. You put your money on stocks and bonds and maybe you have some real estate and you hope if one thing goes up, the other goes down. Diversification is a hedge against failure. That's why in complex, fast-changing environments, we diversify in order to protect ourselves. It provides an insurance. It's the same in nature. That's the reason we have more than one type of fish or one type of bird. The environment changes, and there's a radical change. Some of those will have what they need to survive, and the others won't. It will perish. In that same way, it's important to diversify your sources in your supply chain you might think economically and uh, that it looks better to narrow the sources that you're, that you're getting your, your uh, ingredients from or your, your primary components from uh, because there's an economy of scale. But in reality, when the environment changes, you are prone to become extinct. And that is particularly true if you're over-reliant on global sources.
0: Yeah, and supply chains definitely today are, are global entities. Agreed.
1: But you said supply chain was boring. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you're, <laughs> you're doing a good.
1: But anything but boring. I could talk for hours.
0: <laughs> well, just let me go back to your third point here because I, I think it's super important important today. Smart labels, and specifically, as you look at where things came from, and I, and I apologize if this wasn't you or I didn't see this on one of your sessions, but the banana label was that you that did you show something that where it starts aging the label goes away or is yes. different yes
1: that that was me i i happened to again be at a technology conference in france and uh, a, a venture capitalist came up to me and he says i i i ha- we haven't shown this yet but i knew that you would appreciate it and it was a prescription bottle and uh it was a funny looking prescription bottle because it was orange like most prescription bottles are with the safety cap on it But it had black spots on it, and then he had a bunch of them, and eventually they all turned black, and he said, sometimes the labels wear off, and sometimes people don't read them, but you need to know when your medication has expired, because we don't want people taking expired medication, and so using uh, an aging banana as an example, we've made these pill bottles and they start to get black spots on them as they get older and older. And when they get completely black, you, they're no longer viable as a as medication. And I thought that was so brilliant to take these design ideas out of nature and to be able to incorporate them in, in, to make things easier and safer.
0: Yeah, in the, in the supply chain world, we call that, uh, actually it's the lean world. It's called a pokey, poki It's a Japanese term for mistake proofing. And it's just something to make it easier or make it where you can't do something wrong. That's a neat idea,
1: Yes, and we need that <laughs>
0: yeah. and I like and I like saying pokey oak, so <laughs> so on that on the smart labels, that creates issues on supply chains, especially now because you have to be well there's one thing, conflict minerals, obviously we, in the u s we can't sell things that are sourced under under armed duress or slaves or slave labor things like that, but then it even gets goes into. Something we talk about with supply chains is corporate social responsibility where people want their products coming from more sustainable sources. And I think smart labels. They
1: want clean sources. They want sustainable sources. They want to know that what the labor laws are. They want to know, you know, and that is going to have an every year it gets more and more important. There's not going to be any covering it up. Because once everybody goes to smart labels, people can click on it. And then the next thing will be aggregators. Because this is what always happens. When there's too much data, the aggregators come along. And the aggregators are going to go, of the top milk producers, the most socially responsible is A, B, C, D. And all of a sudden, you find yourself number 25 on that list and you toast. Right. So brands are going to get rated by aggregators of data on uh, smart labels and that's that's coming
0: it's almost like a yelp for
1: it's going to be a yelp for social responsibility and uh, there's not enough smart label information right now but that's going to change lickety split
0: well this is also this is similar to blockchain which we haven't spoken about yet but that that whole traceability do you have opinions on blockchain
1: well, blockchain is here to stay. I didn't mention blockchain because I think that's on everybody's radar right now, as right. a so you know immutable tra- uh, ability to do uh, tracing back to where the original issues are. But one thing, l- let me let me switch gears here for just a moment and just bring up one thing that I think is really really important, and that is you know I was talking about reconnaissance, doing reconnaissance about what is coming down the future because it's too hard to try to react once the change is upon you. But I also think it's really important for supply chain folks to step outside of their industry. Sometimes we're, we're, you know, we're in the poultry industry and we're looking at what other poultry companies are doing. You know, or maybe we're in the computing industry and we're looking at what other computing, but sometimes you really have to step out and look for like types of industries. And I'll give you an example. I was working with Dole Fresh Foods, the largest agricultural producer of uh, fruits and vegetables in the world. We were looking at how to, you know, make their their process from the field to the grocery store more efficient so that we had less loss on the, on the grocery store end. And as I was really studying, you know, I went out into the field in Salinas and was really just tracing heads of lettuce and, and uh, you know, and, and fruit and, and berries in particular that spoil so quickly. And I was really watching all of it. And then, you know, I brought all the executives together and I said, we're going to go on a field trip to an ER. They said, what? And I said, an emergency room. And they said, why are we going to an emergency room? And I said, because you have the same problem an emergency room has. From the moment that you cut a a, a head of lettuce out of the field, it's dying. And your job is to get it to the grocery store before it dies in good health so it can be saved. And so we need to look at what are the tools the ERs use. To communicate to the ambulance driver and then uh, what are the questions they ask on intake and how do they treat that patient and and what what are the software tools they're using and they said we don't we don't refer to our products as dying and i said but they are they're patients you have billions and billions of patients dying from the moment you pull them out of the field the moment you pick a berry it's dying and, and, and it was an eye-opener, and they began to study what ERs were doing, and what kind of software tools, and what kind of communication systems they were using, and, uh, and code words, and categorization of products, and it really had a major significance on them. So that's just one example of step outside your, your own industry and look at your problems differently. You might not think that in your, if you're in the agricultural business, your products are dying, but they're dying.
0: If I can, Rebecca, to that example, look outside your industry. Something I, I talk about to my students in classes, supply chain classes, is it's trying to minimize dwell time That's when the process is, isn't doing something to earn money. The example I give is Southwest Airlines. You're familiar with them. They, they looked at their, their turnaround times at the gates, and rather than comparing it to Delta American Airlines, they went to an, an Indy, IndyCar a pit crew and they said what are they doing what are the types of things that they are doing to make their turnaround times quicker and that's kind of where i don't know if it's true but that's the lore that i've always heard about so i think you're, you're that, spot that's, on
1: that's exactly true you have to look outside your industry in order to be a pioneer and a leader and whatever problem you're solving has been solved by another industry
0: now we haven't talked about what's popular these days at least in the marketing spiel is uh, driverless cars or autonomous vehicles. Could relate to moving freight around the country, but any any perspective there?
1: Well, I think, you know, that's going to be largely dependent on 5G, where trucks and cars can communicate to each other. Right now, you're still being controlled by central dispatch, largely, and in terms of routing and so on and so forth. But once 5G comes into play, because we just haven't had the bandwidth, once 5G comes into play... Imagine that you're in a delivery van and you need to move to the right lane and your delivery van tells the car to the right of you, open up a space because I have to make a right turn in the next block. You're not going to be putting on a signal and you're not going to be looking for an opening. All cars will be talking to other cars on the road. All trucks will be talking to other trucks. And there'll be no human intermediary. And that's what 5G will allow to uh, come to fruition. But it's gonna take a while for that 5G infrastructure to build out. And I did a panel discussion for the New York Times, I think it's on our website, on uh, the build out of 5G and why it's going to, not the 5G that you see on advertised on TV, but I'm talking about the real 5G that's needed for machine to machine communication.
0: It all requires data. That's the key thing. And that's one thing I, I saw in a recent presentation, not necessarily yours, but person said data is the new oil. Whereas, you know, the industrial economy was driven by oil. And now the, new, the future economy is going to be driven by data. That's an interesting space, interesting concept. That's
1: right, and and bear in mind, you know, we started out talking about this label that's been foisted on me, futurist, which yeah. I'm, I've never been comfortable with. But but think about it: the more data you have, the better, the more accurate your predictions are about what's coming and when it's coming. We launched those GOES weather satellites just last year that gave us, uh, you know, six times more data, and suddenly six months later. It's pinging my phone and saying it's going to rain in six minutes. That six-fold increase in data is making our weather forecasting much more accurate, which means that hurricane paths will be more accurate. The time that we can give people to evacuate entire cities from floods or deadly you know, tornadoes is going to be much more accurate. So the more data you have, the more likely you can predict what the next event is going to be and and you'll be you'll be accurate you know i don't have a crystal ball but i have a great track record but only because i study the data
0: and let me as as we ramp down i've got one last concept or it's actually your concept that i'm a big fan of i'm a big enough fan that i actually use it in my own presentations and people think i'm spectacular by the way that's pretty <laughs> because you are? i <laughs> because I use your words. Predaptation. Pre-adaptation, and, and I say that because I like the word, but I believe it's happening, especially in supply chains. Because if you look at supply chains as global entities, they're network to network pretty much. So if Kroger, for example, I don't know if you have Kroger's out West, Kroger grocery stores, they're depending on Hunts, Del Monte, Dole for their, their supplies. So they need to understand what their supply, what's happening to their supply chains as well. So predaptation in supply chains is, is becoming critical, whether it's you know, my supplier left left their dock door late, so they, they have a new predictive ETA, hurricanes yeah. coming, whatever it's going to be, those things need to be accounted for. And uh, and supply chains, through the use of data and neural networks, are beginning to make those pre adaptive decisions before anybody even has to go in and, and solve the problems.
1: Well, think of how much reliant on supply chain we've become. It used to be, you know, I remember when Big stores like Walmart, you know, or or Costco used to have a giant warehouse behind the actual retail store where they stocked their inventory. But now just think about it, you know, Walmart's ideal situation is they've scanned a a, a can of tomato soup and that can that they just sold will be replaced by the next morning. So there's the, that, that real estate space that used to be there that had contingent inventory in it is completely gone. We're completely dependent on supply chain running like clockwork.
0: Yeah, that's the key thing. Is, and again, it goes back to a lot size of one. One can is all I need for that shelf space. So let's get it in.
1: That's right. I need that one can. Now, where is that one can? Is there a weather event? that's coming, is there a pandemic underway? You know, is that one can coming from overseas? The actual can, but the ingredients themselves are gonna be Del Monte, but the materials to make the can are coming from overseas, so we can't actually make the can to put the tomato soup in. You know, you, you really have to get deep, deep, deep into sourcing with your partners, your key partners, and know if they've got the diversity In their supply chain to be able to make good; otherwise, you're left holding the bag.
0: The last thing I I think I just I'll attribute this to you as well, but maybe tell me what this means. Insight is the spontaneous organization of chaos. It sounds cool. I just what does it mean? Is that your term? Well, many
1: many years ago, you know, I'm a great study a student of neuroscience, and many years ago, they discovered this process in the brain that they labeled insight where a lot of data that you have in your brain all of a sudden comes together in a solution. And they said everybody's had moments where you've been looking at a problem and all of a sudden out of nowhere, you say, oh, I know what to do. And everyone else around you says, how would you come up with that? And you can't find a logical uh, process. Well, I did thought about this and then I did this and then I did this and then I did this. It's not like that. It's just spontaneous But the problem is we see that, you know, in in studying what goes on inside the brain, that a lot of parts of the brain sort of shut down, almost as though they're saving up to be able to put unrelated pieces of data together into this elegant solution. And then once you have an insight, you might not have one for years or months or ever again. And so um, it's kind of this spontaneous process where a lot of data that doesn't seem related comes together into a a, a very elegant solution. And scientists are really studying how to get people to be able to have more insights. And we've made no headway. Meditating beforehand doesn't do it. Your diet doesn't affect it. It's almost as though our brains just have not evolved to be able to have that capability on an ongoing basis yet. Give us a couple million more years. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Thank you for that. Now, if you have uh, if you have a minute or two, can, can you tell us just about your books? I, I know you're you're a prolific writer as well. You have two books, which I, as a as a bad host, I haven't read yet. But what are your books about?
1: Well, I would suggest everybody start with the Watchman's Rattle. And the Watchman's Rattle really is a book about what happens when there is mass confusion inside of organizations and also inside of societies between an unproven belief. An opinion versus a, a an empirically proven fact. It really traces through a number of um, societies and organizations of what happens when there's confusion, and eventually policy is based on an unproven belief. It really sets the organization or the society up for a sudden event to cause them to collapse. That book is a really easy read, and it's a it really kind of will give you a different perspective of what's happening in the world of business and also government. The second book is called On the Verge, and that's more about pre It's about uh, how we can look at nature and see the different strategies in nature that have allowed a less than, you know, 0.00001% of the species to survive. I mean, 99.9999% of all species that have walked the earth Are no longer here but there's a very very small percentage that that did make it and they use very very specific adaptive strategies and so i talk a little bit about how you can pre-dapt by learning what these strategies are and making yourself ready for change the 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 most important thing is to be ready for radical pivots
0: where would you prefer people to get these books from your website or the else. best
1: thing is to go to our website, which is really easy. It's RebeccaCosta.com.
0: Yep.
1: It, it, it's very easy to find.
0: So my last question has to do with. Wait,
1: you've had two last questions.
0: <laughs> That's true. My last last so, question.
1: the third one. I'm uh, sure. I'm,
0: I, I'm not allowed to say this because this is a boring topic, but I'm excited. People, maybe students, I, I have a, it seems to be I have a percentage of, of people that listen that are trying either graduating from college or going to college or, or trying to transition their careers. Do you have any suggestions on anybody at that level? Maybe if they're going to college, what should they be studying to help them get a better job or get a job? If it relates to supply chain, great, but just in general, any suggestions there?
1: The most important thing is going to be, you know, looking at the trends that I talked about. Drones, robotics, robots don't call in sick and, you know, and they become cheaper and cheaper. um, And particularly social robots, I would uh, aim them toward that smart label technology, um, blockchain technology, 3D printing. I would look look at those areas as areas where, you know, you might uh, specialize. I I believe that in terms of supply chain, you want to be a specialist, not a generalist.
0: On that topic, where did you go to university?
1: I went to the University of California, Santa Barbara.
0: I, and I, I knew that i just i just one of my got to be one of my favorite universities i just where it is it's, it's a fantastic location that's a great spot
1: well it was and i and i was uh, back in those days i i think i was more interested in surfing than i was i was oh, going yeah. to school. but you know uh it was a it was a wonderful time they had uh, an amazing uh biology and um, uh, engineering department and it was kind of a a, a best kept secret so uh, it was it was just absolutely a wonderful education that I had there.
0: And what did you study, futurism or, or what?
1: No, so in those days, I, you know, I'm, I'm older. We didn't have hybrid uh, degrees. So I studied uh, sociology and biology uh, because I was interested in becoming a sociobiologist. I was very influenced by the work of uh, Harvard professor Edward O. Wilson, the greatest naturalist in the world. He's been a mentor of mine uh, ever since I was an undergrad there. Uh, I had, a, had the good fortune several years later to meet him and to have him graciously endorse my books, which I was just flabbergasted. It was funny. I took my, my first book to him as a manuscript, and I said, I think I've written a book. And, of course, he's written hundreds of books. And I took my first manuscript to him. And, and I said, would you mind looking at this and just making sure I'm not making a fool of myself? Because I'd rather do that privately than publicly. And, and he said, it would be my pleasure. And he said, I have one question. What took you so long? You, you know, and I said, well, we're not all as prolific a writer as you are. But uh, he has been uh, the biggest influence uh, in my life. And for people who are studying, thinking about supply chain, Uh, As an area of study or as an area of their career, I would say it is really, really important to find a mentor uh, who has, you know, um, uh, carved their way in that profession. Find someone who has that job and allow them to uh, make a bridge for you as you come out of school.
0: Yeah, that's one thing I'm learning through my podcast. Uh, Part of my career is, is people have mentors. That seems to be a common theme I hear.
1: Yes, yes, it, 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 it is. It is. I would be nowhere without uh, Edward.
0: So, well, your books and looking at your website, you're, you've got some very influential people review, making good comments on your book. So that means they're either good or you have a good publicist, perhaps both. So again, Rebecca, I appreciate anything else. Parting words?
1: No, not at all. Yes, I do have a parting word. Supply chain is not boring.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I like that. Rebecca, I appreciate your time. Thanks for investing in with me today.
1: Thank you, and keep up the good work.
0: Supply Chain is Boring is part of the Supply Chain Now Network, the voice of supply chain. Interested in sponsoring this show or others to help you get your message out? Send a note to chris at supplychainnow.com. We can also help with world-class supply chain education and certification workshops for you or your team. Thanks for listening. And remember, supply chain is boring.
1: There's so much technology and so many solutions that we're just not putting into play. I believe a solution to every problem humanity faces right now already exists.